Our text this morning comes to us from Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. And here we find the parable of the wicked tenants. Matthew 21, beginning at verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dresser that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dresser took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So far. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think of when you think of the cross? In the midst of our commercialized culture, many in this world have little knowledge of its true significance. To them, it's nothing more than a pendant on a chain that hangs around their neck. For others, perhaps, who have a very superficial understanding of Christianity, it may connect them to their Christian roots. They may even understand that the cross symbolizes the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who arose from the dead victorious over sin and Satan. And even the most nominal and superficial believer who identifies with the cross may understand that this victory was necessary for salvation. And they want to share in the benefits of what our Lord and Savior did when He went to the cross. As do we all. But beloved... If the cross is reduced to a simple association with the Christian church, can I really expect to claim him to be my savior, to be my own? Isn't this expectation rather optimistic? For those of us who have a more mature understanding of scripture, we should know better. 
God has called us to to do more than acknowledge his death and victory on the cross. He calls us to live out of that knowledge. Look at what he's done. He suffered and died the shameful death on a cross, being despised and put to shame. He gave his very life for us. Surely that is worth far more than our superficial acknowledgement of what he's done. The message of the cross needs to transform us. It needs to change our lives. And how is it with us? Who attend the worship services regularly, week after week? Who are familiar with the message of the cross? Has it changed us? Are we bearing fruit in our day-to-day walk of life in in a response of thankfulness for what Christ has accomplished? Because there's another side to the message of the cross. One we often overlook, God's judgment. We're very eager to embrace Christ's victory. But Christ also warned the Jewish leaders in the week leading up to his death that judgment would follow the death of God's Son. And the reason that Christ announced this judgment was because the Jewish leaders had refused to give God the fruit that he was due. And isn't that message still relevant today? Therefore, I preach to you God's word under the following theme and points. God laid the foundation of a church that will bear fruit. And we see that God patiently waits for the church to bear fruit. We see that God judges the church that does not bear fruit. And finally, we see that God ensures that the church will bear fruit. So to fully appreciate the significance of the parable of the wicked tenants, we need to place it in its context. At the beginning of Matthew 21, we can read the account of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And following Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, he clears the temple. And then Matthew 21 verse 18 tells us about the next day, the subsequent day when Jesus curses the fig tree. The Gospel of Mark indicates that it was on the following day that the disciples observed the withered fig tree in the morning as they went up to Jerusalem to the temple. And then the events of our parable follow. So Jesus tells our parable on the Tuesday of the week leading up to his death. And we read that he entered the temple courts and was busy teaching the people. The chief priests and the elders who just days before had witnessed a triumphal entry and the clearing of the temple were indignant with this Jesus. Matthew 21.15 recalls that when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. The people acknowledged Jesus as the Messianic King, the Son of David. But this claim by the people left the leaders resentful of our Lord and Savior. How could he allow the people to claim that he was the Messiah? And now here was this Jesus teaching in the temple courts. And so they asked him, 
By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? The question betrays what's in their heart. They don't want to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. But the evidence was clear. And Jesus presses the point home by asking them where the authority of John the Baptist had come from. The people had come to the right conclusion. John's authority was from heaven. But again, the leaders did not want to accept this conclusion. And so Jesus doesn't give them a direct answer. But in a roundabout way, through a number of parables, he makes his point. In the parable of the wicked tenants, Jesus wants to point out to the leaders of Israel that God had made a tremendous investment in the Jewish nation. He compares God to a landowner who planted a vineyard. In the ancient world, establishing a vineyard requires a significant outlay of money and resources. First, it was necessary to plant and groom the vines. Second, it was common to build a rock wall and watchtower to keep out unwanted animals and those who might try to steal fruit from the vineyard, or worse, to seize the vineyard by force. And finally, a wine press was constructed where the produce of the land could be processed into wine. The owner's investment would take a minimum of three years to begin to produce a return. The vines would need to grow and mature before a significant harvest could be expected. And all this time, the landowner would have nothing to show in return for his investment. Often, the landowner did not tend the vineyard himself. It was common practice to make an arrangement with some tenants to care for the vineyard. Such a contractual agreement usually stipulated that the tenants would give a certain amount of the fruit or wine to the landowner as rent. The remaining fruit would be the tenant's pay. But what often happened was that unscrupulous landowners would set the rent very high so that the tenants would have little return for all their hard work. And the tenants usually had little recourse against the rich and powerful landowner. So when disagreements arose between the tenants and the landowner, it was often because of a hard and uncaring landowner. But in Jesus' parable, we observe something quite different. The tenants are the ones who are acting in an unethical manner. In fact, the scene being described defied credibility. If it had really happened that the tenants refused the terms of their contract, it would have not taken long for the rich landowner to have them expelled. And so the picture being painted shows a group of tenants that really hadn't thought through the repercussions of their actions. They had the audacity to defy the landowner repeatedly, even though the landowner was in a position to have them arrested, even punished. And it shows us something about the landowner. He is patient. He suffers their insults time and again in the hope that the tenant will see their error and give him the fruit that he deserves. Many servants had been sent to collect the agreed-upon rent only to be mistreated, beaten, or killed. And in spite of all that, the owner did not treat them as their actions deserved. And finally... He decides to send his son with the thought that they will respect him. The word translated as respect has a 
Greek root, and that root means to turn. And so the landowner is confident that sending his son would be sufficient to turn these villains from their evil path and so respect the heir of the vineyard. But what do they do instead? They kill him with the misguided thought that they could take the inheritance by force for themselves. Isaiah 5, verse 7, tells us something about the vineyard. Jesus is referring back to that image. And there it says that the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And so what we're seeing described in this parable is the reality of the Old Testament church, God's vineyard. The Lord had invested deeply in the people of Israel. He called them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He had guided them by His covenant promises, giving them the tabernacle and the temple with all the sacrifices that pointed to Jesus Christ. He promised them salvation. Out of all the nations upon the face of the earth, He had singled out Israel and raised them up to be His own people. But what did they do? They killed the prophets and the priests who came in the name of the Lord to receive the fruit of thankful service that he required. The Lord refused, sorry, the leaders refused to recognize their authority. And yet our God was patient and long-suffering. And so in our reading, we see the sun coming to the vineyard, to the leaders of Israel, the tenants. Beloved, when we see what's transpired the events that led up to this event, we can only conclude one thing. What an undeserved mercy this was that God's Son came to Israel to collect the fruit that was due His Father. Many of the common people recognized His authority. But the chief priests and the elders refused, asking the question, by what authority are you doing these things? They were indignant that the people had recognized him as the Christ, the Son of God. And don't we experience the same undeserved mercy? God sent his one and only Son for you and for me. The question is, do we recognize his authority you see brothers and sisters our thankful service begins when we recognize God's authority in our lives when we see that the son is truly the son of God and that he is due our service and how does that affect who I am and how I live yes we can be very religious but yet so obstinate in our service Are we ready and willing to recognize the authority of the ones God has sent, the ones God has placed over us, the elders and deacons of this church? Or more importantly, are we ready to recognize the Son and the call of Christ Himself that's given through the proclamation of the gospel each week? 
It's not surprising that Jesus tells the parable of the two sons on the heels of this question on authority. Many sinners had initially failed to recognize God's authority, living a life of sin. But later, they turned to him as a result of John's preaching. But not the leaders. They who claimed to respect the law and the prophets, they failed to listen to John. And worse than that, they failed to respect God's own son. And Jesus tells them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. God is calling us to recognize the authority of the Son and to produce fruit in keeping with this reality. The leadership of Israel refused. Listen to the words of the Lord found in Isaiah 5. Words of judgment about the vineyard. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. And that brings us to our second point. God judges the church that bears no fruit. Beloved, in spite of the landowner's patience, his goodwill towards the wicked tenants could not sustain this final offense. They refused to respond in good faith to the terms of their contract and now had killed the son. The response of the landowner is predictable. And Jesus poses the question, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And you will notice who answers. Beginning at verse 23 and forward, Jesus is speaking to the chief priests and the elders. And they are the ones who answer the question in verse 41. They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. The chief priests and the elders of Israel declared the death penalty for those wicked tenants. And they acknowledged the justice of the landowner in giving the vineyard to another. The the religious leadership had indicted themselves. God is patient, but he is also holy and just, and they knew it. Jesus is putting it in terms they would understand. Implicitly, he's telling them, you have not recognized me, the Son of God, the Christ. John spoke of me, and the people believed, but you didn't. I came with miraculous signs and wonders, healing the sick, blind and lame, declaring the coming of the kingdom of God. Again, the people recognized me, crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. The Son has come to receive the fruit from His Father's vineyard. And I know that you will refuse to render to God the fruit He deserves. That you will kill the Son. And this final offense of killing the Son will not be overlooked. Judgment is coming for Israel. 
and following the establishment of the New Testament church. We see the fulfillment of this judgment with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 and with the dispersing of the Jewish people throughout the Roman Empire. And then Jesus challenges them and he asks them the question, have you never read in Scripture? In other words, Jesus is saying, you of all people, you're the teachers of the law, teachers of Scripture who know what's been written. How come the common people see it, but you can't? There's no excuse. You've read it, haven't you? And Jesus reminds them of what they had read. And here he makes a reference to Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a quote from Psalm 118 and is typically understood to be the messianic king of Israel who celebrates his victory over his enemies, those who had rejected him as king. The victory ensured a king on the throne of Israel, a cornerstone or foundation for the Jewish nation. And it pointed to a future when the true messianic king would be victorious over all his enemies and establish a new and better world order, built upon a new and better kingship, a church chosen to everlasting life of all tribes and all nations. Jesus is declaring that by their rejection, a new and better future would come for the church. His death on Good Friday was part of God's plan for a marvelous new future. But many would not share in that future. A cornerstone would be laid on Easter that would have a twofold effect. Either you will build upon that stone as your foundation in faith, or you will fall upon that stone in disbelief and be broken. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Here we have an allusion to a clay pot. The church or the people who fail to recognize Christ as the foundation are like a clay pot that will be broken when it falls upon a stone or crushed to pieces when the stone falls upon it. But that brings up an important question. What does it mean to build upon the foundation of Christ? Our text says, Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah. The people had proclaimed it on Palm Sunday. John the Baptist had preached it. And Jesus himself implies that he is the capstone, the messianic king. The scriptures attested to this truth. All the evidence stood accusing them that they were the unfaithful tenants because they failed to recognize his authority and give him the fruit of thankful service. Truly recognizing Christ means that I live in the knowledge that Jesus is my King, placing my faith and trust in the one sacrifice He made on the cross and building upon that as my cornerstone. And that should be a warning for us all, brothers and sisters. We can show up twice on Sunday. We can know the Scriptures from front to back. We can even pay lip service to God's Word but fail to recognize the authority of the Son in my day-to-day life. 
You may even know that what you hear every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, is the truth. That the message of the gospel accuses you, even condemns you. But in your pride, you refuse to confess your sin and take up your cross and follow him. Our text warns us, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That was the fate of the Jews who paid lip service to God's word, but refused to believe in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's be clear, brothers and sisters, the disobedience of the Jews back then or the disobedience of the church today will reap the Lord's righteous judgment. But in spite of that, the Lord's plan will not be stopped. The Lord's plan will reach fulfillment. It will not alter the Lord's plan for his vineyard. In the face of all opposition, he will ensure that the church will bear fruit. And that brings us to our third point. God ensures that the church will bear fruit. Jesus makes his point more clearly in verse 43, where he says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That new nation is the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we read in 1 Peter 2? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When the tenants kill the son, they forfeit any right to the vineyard. The vineyard will be given to others who will produce fruit because the Jewish leaders refused to recognize the Son's authority, denying God the Father the fruit that He was entitled to. They would send the Son to His death on the cross, and the kingdom would be taken away, and Jesus would rise from the dead. The Son who would become the chief cornerstone, the foundation of a new and better church, a nation to God. And what does that mean for us, beloved? 1 Peter 2 verse 4 reminds us that we come to a living stone. And isn't that the message of the cross? That Jesus, our Savior, though He died, yet He lives. Death did not have the power to keep Him. He rose glorious and victorious. The foundation of the New Testament church. 1 Peter 2 goes on to teach us that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because He lives. We too can live. I was dead in my sin and misery, but now I live in Christ a living member of His church, a building block resting upon the foundation He laid upon His resurrection. And so we need to ask the question, is that me? Am I alive in Jesus Christ? 
Simple mental assent is not a living faith. James makes it clear that faith without works is dead. Showing up on Sunday, but refusing to confess my sin, not recognizing Christ's authority in my life, will make Christ a stumbling block for me, as he was for the Jewish leadership. Beloved, the power of the cross is that it makes the dead live. The worst of all sinners can have life in Christ by submitting to him. Acknowledge his authority and give him the fruit of thankful service for what he has done on the cross. And you will share in that victory, the victory of life. And you will be joined as a living member to the church of all times and places in eternity. Beloved, our Heavenly Father ensured that He would receive fruit from His vineyard by sending His Son to die the horrible death on the cross so that He could defeat death through His glorious resurrection and become a foundation of a living house. Build upon that foundation and you shall live. Our reading in Peter says, Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Amen.